as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we've been hearing about the kingdom of God, Jesus coming and proclaiming that the kingdom is near. And because the kingdom is near, you should repent and, and, and surrender to the kingdom, receive the kingdom. Uh, and as he's doing signs and wonders, casting out demons, doing miraculous things, he's displaying the power of the kingdom. Well, as we come to this text tonight in Daniel chapter 2, uh, something that happened thousands of years before Christ came, uh, not actually thousands, because uh, the people of Israel went into Babylonian captivity at about 586 B.C. So about 500 or so years, five or 600 years before Christ even appeared on the scene, God gives a pagan king a dream that is ultimately foretelling what Jesus is going to inaugurate when he shows up and begins his ministry, which is the kingdom of God. The world is in utter chaos today. And for generations, we're not the first, but generations of, of people have been reading the scriptures and trying to interpret the events of their time as being those of the end times or the end of days. Uh, but with our ability uh, to be interconnected globally, seeing uh, the news and what's happening uh, in other parts of the world through the web, we see the war, we see the poverty, we see the injustice, we see the economic and the political insecurity and instability all over the world. It causes us to wonder, are we too perhaps really living in the end times? Is this the end that we read about in Scripture? Many of us are anxious. We're worrying about national and economic security. Uh, in a presidential election year, many people are worried about uh, the political uh, stance of things in our country. They're worried about the political scene. People are worried about the environment. What's going to be here for, for my son and for my grandchildren at the rate we're going in the world? And then there are those of us who may even be gathered here tonight that None of those things are as concerning to us or as pressing to us as the reality of what it will mean for you to be an open follower of Christ in the workplace or on your campus, especially in a culture where it's more okay and celebrated to be gay than it is to be a follower of Christ. Come to know some people here in Seattle, and I mean, I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, what we would call the Deep South. And uh, I spent seven years in ministry in Dallas, Texas. And uh, as I was living life, growing up, starting ministry and doing ministry in the South in general, um, if you wanted to um, foster or adopt kids, being, being a follower of Christ, that was, like, that was like a plus. Like we really want these people to take care of these children who are, who are essentially orphans. But I've come to find out from a family here in Seattle that that's, that's actually been a mark against them. That's been something they've had to, to, to essentially overcome. They're, they're being persecuted for being Christians by saying, we don't know, the state is basically saying, we don't know if we can, we can entrust these kids that have nowhere else to go to go with you because you're followers of Christ. That's the day and age that we live in. Well, our text takes us to a time that's very, very different from ours. Similar in some ways, but very, very different. The people of God, Israel, have been taken out of the promised land and find themselves in Babylonian exile or captivity, in slavery. 
God has been long-suffering with the people of Israel. After the kingdom split and became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, Israel was exceedingly wicked. Every king that they had almost was wicked. Judah had some good kings, some wise kings, some godly kings, and they had some bad kings. But ultimately, God had to bring judgment upon his people, and he did it by removing them from the promised land and having Babylon take the southern kingdom, Judah, into captivity. Well, because they're in captivity, it doesn't, it doesn't release them from who they are as the people of God. They're still called to live under covenant. They're still called, even in, in a place like Babylon, to be lights in the midst of darkness. That's just like us. Even though we're not who or where we used to be, we're not alienated from God. We're not separated from God. We're not far from God because we've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're still not yet where we long to be and we know where we're destined to be, which is standing in the eternal manifest presence of our King, worshiping him forever. So in the meantime, as we are here on earth, as we live this life, as we either await for him to call us home or for him to appear in the sky and and establish, finally establish his kingdom on earth, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we're called, which is that of followers of Jesus Christ. You saw it on the screen, this quote, but at the end of the day, we can rest no matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter what we experience, what's even to come, even if it's worse than where we are. And I believe that it is yet to come, that there are worse days ahead. As Sidney Gradanus says in his commentary, preaching Christ from Daniel, the God of heaven, who is the one who deposes or who takes down kings and sets them up? He reveals that in the end, he will replace all human kingdoms with his everlasting kingdom. We can rest in that. So tonight from Daniel chapter 2, I want to share with you the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the very kingdom that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel as a book at all, or particularly chapter 2 as as we're going to unfold this story tonight. But Daniel is a book of prophecy. It tells a little bit of history uh, from a certain period of time in Israel's history. Uh, But it's a book of prophecy as God is is unfolding many things as to what is going to come, not only in Israel's history, but in world history. And this chapter tonight is particularly one of those. Maybe when you think about Daniel, you think about uh, Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. That's in there, but that's not tonight. Maybe when you think about Daniel, you think about the Daniel fast and how we're going to take uh, certain things out of our diet and we're not going to eat these things because uh, eating a certain thing is what's been prescripted in Scripture. And we find all of this laid out in chapter 1. Well, we're not dealing with the Daniel fast in chapter 1. Maybe when you think about Daniel, you think about uh, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being thrown into the fiery furnace. That's in Daniel, but that's not tonight either. Tonight... I want to borrow, as my pastor would say growing up, your sanctified imagination. And picture with me a young king who is essentially on top of the world. He has been conquesting the world and spreading his empire. This king's name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is in the second year of his reign as king of all of Babylon And as they've been going across the world, they've been taking nations much like Judah or like Israel into captivity, making them a part of the empire. And in his second year, Nebuchadnezzar is is getting to a place where he's losing sleep at night. Over and over, he has a dream that he can't really figure out. Maybe when he first has it, he thinks, hmm, that was an interesting dream. The next night that he has the dream, he thinks, huh, that's funny, I had the same dream two nights in a row. 
and then the third and the fourth and the fifth, and on and on as he continues to have this dream, he, he begins in, to become increasingly disturbed over what it is he's seeing in his sleep, especially because he can't understand what it is that he's seeing. So being king of a great empire, he calls together, the text says, all the magicians, all the enchanters, all the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were mystical people. He calls all of the wise men of his empire together to find out what this dream means. But to be sure that they know what they're talking about, he doesn't do what, what Pharaoh does back in Genesis and explains the dream and then waits for an interpretation. What Nebuchadnezzar says is, since you are the wise men, you're the spiritual counselors in my kingdom, I want you to tell me the dream and interpret the dream. If you can do this and do it rightly, I will reward you greatly. I'll make you one of the, among the richest people in my kingdom. But if you don't, realizing that Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a, is a, a terror of a man, he, he is, he is, he, he, to describe how, how treacherous he is, <laughs> there, there's no length to it. He says, if you can't describe, if you can't tell me what the dream is and interpret it, then I'll rip you from limb to limb. And your whole family, I'll destroy you. I'll wipe you out of my empire. Well, if you're one of these men, <laughs> what are you thinking? Whoa, okay. So, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we need to uh, take a time out and we need to kind of huddle over here. And so, uh, I believe... But according to the text, perhaps these men had some time to talk amongst themselves. And they decided, what we're going to do, we're going to go back. Even though the king has already told us, tell me the dream and I'll interpret, we're going to go back to him and say, tell us the dream and we'll interpret. So when they come back to the king and they say, all right, king, we can help you out, but you got to help us out. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. Nebuchadnezzar is not as dumb as he looks. And he says, I know what you're doing. I'm trying to buy time. And I don't have time to give. So let's take the reward off the table, and let me just put it to you straight. You tell me the dream, and you interpret it, or you die. And these men, they're like, okay, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, let's uh, realize, like, nobody can tell somebody what they dreamed. You're asking us to do the impossible. Quite frankly, what you're asking us to do is absurd. As a matter of fact, what they even tell him is that no one knows the dreams that is in someone else's heart or in their head, except, interestingly, how they describe, except the God who does not dwell in flesh. That's the only one that can tell you what you want to know. Nebuchadnezzar just decides, okay, you're all useless to me then. And he issues an order that all the wise men in his empire are to be executed. All of them. Well, among those wise men are the main characters of this entire book. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's actually their Babylonian names. Uh, Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. These four men, these four godly men who have already proven themselves, but they find themselves being rounded up by the king's captain of the army. And he says, hey, pack your stuff. We got to go. Daniel's wondering, where are we going? What's going on? And he begins to unpack for Daniel what's happened, how the king called together all the wise men and, and told them, I've been having a dream that I've been losing sleep over. It's terrifying me. I need you to tell me the dream. I need you to interpret it. Then basically saying, we can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. Him saying, okay, you're useless to me. Everybody needs to be executed. I need some people who are useful to me. And Daniel says, okay, okay. 
what I need first and foremost is an audience with the king. So can you do that for me? So Daniel takes off. Uh, the captain agrees. He goes to the palace. He sets an appointment with the king. And he comes back to his house and he gets his friends together. And he says, okay, we got to pray. We got to pray to God for mercy that he would spare us. Because if, if, he doesn't, if he doesn't spare the wise men in Babylon, we're going to go down with them. We need, to, we need to beseech God for his mercy to spare us. But not only that, that he would give us the dream, that he would re- reveal it to us, and he would tell us how to interpret the dream. So these men begin to pray together. They begin to intercede. And God speaks, God shows, reveals to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream is and how to interpret it. And the passage that John read a little bit earlier is where Daniel begins to praise God. And notice what he says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. This God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you've given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So things begin to pick up. Daniel goes back to Arioch, the captain of the king's army, and he says, okay, I'm ready to see the king. Bring me in to tell him the dream and to interpret it. So Daniel boldly comes in and tells Nebuchadnezzar, we see what has happened so far. The men that you've called to seek counsel from, they're not true spiritual counselors. Babylon was a nation of pagans. They didn't worship the true and living God, the God of Israel. And so when when Nebuchadnezzar calls together the magicians, the sorcerers, and the enchanters, and the Chaldeans, none of them are seeking after Jehovah God. So none of them have access to to the information, to the revelation of this dream that he's requesting. And Daniel straight up tells him, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that that, that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this God has made known to the king what will be the matter at the end of days. This is what the dream has been all about. So Daniel says, listen up. I'm going to tell you your dream. What you see is a frighteningly large, bright statue. The head is made of fine gold. The chest and the arms are made of silver. The stomach and thighs were made of bronze. Its legs were made of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar in this dream is looking at this massive image, this massive statue, a stone is cut out without human hands and it comes over, moves over almost like an asteroid and strikes the feet of the statue and it falls and is completely crushed to dust. And then the mount, the stone becomes a mountain, and it continues to grow and grow, and it fills the earth. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has night after night after night. And Daniel says, here's what the dream means. The head represents Nebuchadnezzar, you king, and your kingdom. The silver, the bronze, and the iron, they all represent other and lesser 
kingdoms that will come after you. The iron particularly, that kingdom, will break and crush the kingdoms before it. The feet and toes, partly of iron and partly of clay, represent a kingdom partly strong and partly brittle. The stone that crushes them, crushes them all, is the kingdom of God that he will set up. That will never be destroyed, nor will it, nor will it be left to another people, for it shall stand forever. Nebuchadnezzar hears all of this. He falls on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel. He, he blessed him. He gave him all the reward that he had promised to the men earlier. He gave him and his three friends a promotion. He put them over all the affairs of Babylon, and particularly for Daniel, he set him to serve in the king's court close near him, and put him over all of the wise men in Babylon. He made him the chief. He says, I'm going to listen to you before I listen to any of these other clowns. Daniel was rewarded. He was lifted up to a high place. Now, the good news of this passage is, even in the midst of this, this dark pagan nation, God was at work, not only in their midst, not only in the life of Israel, but he was at work speaking of the things that were yet to come, ultimately announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. There are a couple of things I'd like to draw out of this passage. If you're taking notes tonight, let me give them to you. First and foremost, I want us to see that God is at work in people who are far from him. God is at work in people who are far from him. King Nebuchadnezzar is not a a worshiper of the God of Israel. He's a pagan. But God has given him a dream that that essentially unfolds the rest of human history. Daniel's sensitive to what God is doing, namely because his life is on the line because of it. But yet and still, Daniel is sensitive to what God is doing in the life and the heart of the king. Well, much like Daniel, we too can be sensitive to the people in our lives. There are people all around us who are far from God, needing the hope, the security, and the peace that can only be found in Jesus. And we have it. And he is actively at work in their lives. God is actively at work in their lives, sometimes through dreams. There have been numerous accounts of people who are working among Muslims in in Islamic countries that they're hearing from them as they begin to share the gospel. You know, I, I had a dream years ago, or I have been having a dream of a man appearing to me telling me that you were coming to tell me about him. And as they receive the gospel, they're they're only receiving it because Jesus has already been at work in them, preparing them to hear and receive the message. He's coming to them in dreams. Now, not everybody in our lives are having dreams that are in need of being interpreted. However, everybody in our lives, especially not only people who are far from God, but especially people who are far from God, have various circumstances in their lives that they just can't make sense of, that they need someone who has a connection to the God of heaven through Jesus Christ, who can make sense, who can speak truth into the chaos. And that's, that's what God's called us to do. We've just got to realize that God is already at work in people who are far from him. But what it involves is us stepping into the mess, us getting involved in their lives, us stepping into their brokenness, just like Jesus stepped into our brokenness, rescued us, saved us, put our feet on a solid foundation. Being those who have trusted in Jesus, he's given us an identity as ambassadors, as those who will represent him, those who he has entrusted with the ministry and the message of reconciliation, and he sends us into brokenness 
to proclaim that there is a God in heaven who loves you and has demonstrated his love for you in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is at work already in the life of people who are far from him. Secondly, from this passage, the kingdoms of this world are only temporary. The kingdoms of this world are only temporary. As Daniel praises God for revealing the mystery of the dream and its interpretation, notice what he says again in verse 21. He says that God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13.1, that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There's no government, there's no kingdom, there's no empire, there's no authority that has been given among men here on earth that has not first crossed the hand of God. Now, how people execute or carry out their authority, he doesn't approve of all of those ways, but no one has authority unless God has given authority. There's no government that that has been set up by men that God has not allowed that authority to come. So every kingdom... And every time, in every epoch, in every season, it's ultimately come through the authority of God. But they're all temporary. The interpretation that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar has been further studied by theologians, and many have interpreted it further to describe the times as such. We've got an image here that will kind of give you uh, uh, an idea of what this image could have looked like. It's coming. I'll start unpacking it. So as Daniel goes through, he says that uh, what you see, King, is an image, uh, uh, a statue. It's got a head that's made of fine gold. And theologians believe that that represents Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. The silver arms that he describes, the arms in the chest, are believed to represent the next empire that conquers Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire. The bronze belly and thighs are believed to represent the Greco-Macedonian Empire, which was led by Alexander the Great, which conquered the Persian Empire. The iron legs are believed to represent the Roman Empire after Alexander and its east and west divisions representing the two legs. And the feet of iron and clay mixture are believed to represent the final phase of the Roman Empire, which was made up of 10 kings or emperors, emperors, some strong and some weak. This should all serve to remind us that the God of heaven is the one who is in command of time. He's in command of kingdoms. He's in command of governments. And that the coming of Jesus was just the beginning of him establishing his kingdom here on earth. Nebuchadnezzar says, after you you look at this statue and all of these kingdoms that are represented, ultimately they all fall. There's a rock that is hewn out without human hands that comes and strikes this image, strikes this statue, and it falls, becomes dust, and the dust is blown away. The kingdoms of men won't last. Then thirdly, the eternal kingdom of God will be established by his power, by his might. The eternal kingdom of God will be established by his power, by his might. The fact that this stone was hewn out, not with human hands, was God making a statement 
saying that the kingdom that will last forever is the one that he will establish himself. He desires to reign and rule over his creation, over his people, as he intended to from the very beginning. This was God's design from the very beginning. He's saying to Nebuchadnezzar that this stone, as I think about from 1 Peter, the stone that the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. This stone that is cut out not with human hands is going to destroy ultimately every earthly kingdom. And the kingdom of God will not just come, but it will come quite like Jesus describes it, as a mustard seed, which is among the smallest seeds. But as it, as it takes root and it begins to grow, it becomes one of the largest trees in the garden. Well, this stone is described to strike the image, strike the statue, cause it to collapse and fall to dust and be blown away. But the stone begins to grow and becomes a mountain that fills the earth. So what are some takeaways? I think one is that we, we should be intentional to have relationships with people that are far from God. If God is already at work in people who are far from him, I would say setting us up to have encounters with them so they can hear the gospel and respond to it, then we have got to be intentional to be in relationship with people who are far from God. We all work, we play, or hang out, recreation. I don't know what your play is. I'm not, even though we live in the great Northwest and everybody loves going into the outdoors, uh, that's not me and my wife's thing. Uh, we appreciate the outdoors from our window and from the window of our cars. Uh, it's great driving on I-5 and seeing uh, the Cascades in the east and seeing the Olympics in the west. Like, wow, we live here. That's awesome. But that's, uh, that's about as much how I want to appreciate it. It's awesome. But some of you might love that. Getting out there. Some of you might be workout buffs. Uh, I am not. I probably should be more of. But a lot of the people that we do life with, I would definitely say here in the Northwest, the majority of them, quite possibly, are people who are far from God. Where I'm from, we have a different situation, especially uh, in Christian culture or in the church. Uh, we're so, so inoculated with people who are like us that, that we, don't, we have to struggle to find people who are far from him. That to make disciples to the ends of the earth literally means I've got to leave where I am because I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. That's probably not the case here. It very well could be that some of the people in your life who are far from God, you might be the only Christian, the only real Christian they know. By real Christian, I mean a person who believes the authority of Scripture who believes that Jesus was a man who came and lived on earth, who was a real man, who lived, who died, who actually rose again from the grave. And if we believe in him, we can have the forgiveness of our sins and spend eternity with him. You might be the only person that some of the people in your life who are far from God know who believe that. And God's put you there strategically as his representative, as his ambassador to proclaim the truth of Jesus. So be intentional to build those relationships, to cultivate those relationships, to walk in them, to be a part of their life, and to invite them into yours. John, how are we doing with the images back there? John? Not coming up? Okay. A really cool thing I call an oikos map. I'm going to describe it for you, okay? So if you can picture in your mind's eye, I'm going to borrow your sanctified imagination again, okay? So if you can picture in your mind's eye, I've got a big sheet of paper here, okay? 
So I'm going to draw a circle. I'm going to put my name in the middle of that circle. This is a great tool to identify people who are far from God in your life, okay? Uh, Oikos is a Greek word for household, meaning household. So when we see that the Philippian jailer comes to faith, him and his whole household, it's, it's pretty much everybody in his relational network. Everybody that he knows that is kind of closely tied to him and his family. Uh, when, when Peter goes and proclaims the gospel to Peter and his household, it's Peter and his, not Peter, but Cornelius and his household. It's, it's everybody almost that, that Cornelius knows. He invites all of these people so that when Peter comes, he's like, I've got all my friends and family here. Like, we hear that you got a message from God. Cornelius and his whole household, his oikos, came to faith. Well, who are the people that God's already put in our life? Our sphere of influence is another way of saying it. So you can draw a circle and put your name in the middle of that circle. And you think about all the people that you know who are far from God, just kind of draw a line and a circle and put their name in it. I think about one of my neighbors. Her name is Helen. I've got another person that's connected to me, uh, another little old lady, a neighbor, Emily. Got a guy that lives at the end of our hall. Uh, what's his name again, babe? Joe. Then we've got another neighbor downstairs, Eugene. And then I've got a guy that God put in my life about a month after I moved here, CJ. CJ has a mom who lives here in the Seattle area who's, who's uh, struggling with muscular dystrophy. She's older, uh, probably not quite at the end of her life, but she's definitely coming to that. Uh, CJ's in AA. And so as he's found um, some seeming freedom through that process, through the steps process, he's, he's beginning to help his mom step through that process. Well, she's got some ladies that he's introduced to her that have, have come into her life and are basically doing a steps meeting in her home. CJ has invited me to meet his mom because it'd be great for her to, to talk to a spiritual person. He's not all that religious. He believes in God, but not, not in Jesus. He, hasn't, he isn't that religious yet, so he says. He hasn't embraced the gospel. But he's asked me to maybe think about visiting his mom. Do I want to visit CJ's mom? Of course I do. Because CJ's mom is far from God, just like CJ is. And these women that she's meeting with, having a steps meeting in her home, they're all far from God. So if I can't, if I can't convince CJ to believe on Jesus... God's at work in his life. I believe that, but he hasn't embraced the gospel yet. But CJ wants to introduce me to his mom. Then I'm, yes, I'm going to go to his mom and I'm going to share the gospel with her. And then hopefully I'm going to teach her how to share the gospel with all these other ladies that she's meeting with. How I would love to find out that CJ one day comes to faith, but even if he doesn't, that his mom came to faith and led the women that she meets with to faith. And this 12 steps meeting that they've been having in her apartment becomes a Bible study. All because God put me in Seattle, connected me to CJ, CJ connected me to his mom, and she's connected to these other women. And there's tons of other people that I can connect to myself and, and begin to draw out other relationships that I know of. With, with, my, with my neighbor, Helen, she has a daughter here in Seattle. She has a son in Pittsburgh. Both of them are married. They have families. Emily, this other neighbor right next door, she has a son up in Bellingham. How do I know these things? Because I've been intentional. I've tried to be intentional to engage in the lives of the people that God has put in my life who are far from him. So then not only can I see who God has put in my life, but I can begin to pray for lostness. Not only should we be intentional to be in the lives of lost people, but we should draw out what I would call an oikos map, or let's just call it our sphere of influence, our relationship map. However you want to say that, be intentional to do that so you can be clearly able, you can be clearly able to see who God's put in your life, who to pray for, and who you need to share the gospel with. 
man, a lot of times we just get bogged down because I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Well, drawing that map, I know, man, we've got like six people right there in our building who need to hear about Jesus. If we don't share with anybody else, let's start with those six. Let's start praying for those six. And as we pray for them and we work to share the gospel with them, how can we share the gospel? Had a great picture illustration. So this totally bombs. But let me just share with you a simple way to enter into a gospel conversation. A lot of times we just get hung up on, okay, so how do I even start? Don't start spiritual things. Don't start with, have you ever gone to church? What do you believe about God? Ask a simple question. Has anybody ever shared the gospel with you? It's that easy. Like if you start with church, people maybe, maybe grew up in church, maybe had, had bad experiences. Um, maybe I grew up Roman Catholic, then I bailed on the church when all the stuff came out about priests. And, you know, there's all kind of things that people have experienced with spirituality. We don't want to talk about spirituality. We want to get to the gospel. So the quickest way to the gospel is to ask, has anyone ever shared the gospel with you? Well, if they're far from God, they might answer by saying, well, what's the gospel? I'm glad you asked. I like to start with brokenness because we can all identify with brokenness. We see brokenness in the world around us. We see it evidenced through the poverty, through the wars in the world. We see it evidenced all over Seattle through homelessness, broken dreams, broken ambitions. But God didn't destine us as a people, as humanity, to live in brokenness. God had an original design that was perfect. It's God's way is what I like to call it. How do we end up in brokenness? We chose our way over God's way. The Bible calls that sin. When we find ourselves in brokenness, people try to get out of brokenness in all kind of ways. They try to pursue success. They try to pursue uh, relationships. They try to be good, moral people. If I do enough good that outweighs my bad, then in the end, I should be okay. And some people just like to numb themselves to the pain of their brokenness, and they turn to drugs and alcohol. All these things are, are attempts to get out of brokenness, but they're like bungee cords, and they just snatch us back into brokenness. But there is a God in heaven who loves us and who has a way to rescue us from brokenness. He sent his son, Jesus. He sent his son, Jesus, to earth, and Jesus lived a perfect life. And by living a perfect life, what I mean is he lived out his life God's way. None of us have done that. We've all chosen our way over God's way. Jesus perfectly lived out God's way, but he died on a cross as a criminal, as one who had gone his own way, so that by dying, he could be a substitute for all of us who have gone our own way. And to prove that he was the son of God, to prove that he was able to save, to rescue us from brokenness, God raised him from the dead on the third day. He conquered death. He paid the price for our brokenness. And he ascended to heaven. And according to Daniel 2, the good news of the kingdom is Jesus is coming again to establish that kingdom. And that kingdom, there is no dying. There is no, no war. There is no injustice. There is no poverty. Everything is as God intended it in that kingdom. But we have a responsibility. We first have to repent. Or a more common word would be turn. Turn from our way and our brokenness and trust in Jesus. And by turning and believing in Jesus, Jesus enables us to, re to recover and to pursue God's original design for us. It's that simple. There's a lot of wording there, 
had a great image that would like make that so much simpler. Maybe we'll have another chance another time to show that image to kind of train us in a way to share that message. Oh, yeah. There's an app called Life Conversations. Uh, Or you can look it up, I think, by three circles. Uh, It's a great tool to just be able to sit down with a person and just kind of walk through this app and explain the gospel just as I just did, just as I did. Uh, Life Conversations or three circles. Look for that. I think it's put out... um, by NAM, N-A-M-B. Uh, look it up in the App Store, and I think uh, in I, I've never done anything in the Android Store, so Android Store, so just kind of kind of look there. Uh, but that's a great tool to be able to use. And the way you segue into sharing the gospel is just by asking a simple question: Has anybody ever shared the gospel with you? The good news of God's kingdom is that Jesus has come. He's already come to inaugurate, to establish that kingdom. The rock that was cut out by no human hands, has fallen. The kingdoms of this world, the time clock is upon them. But as the church began, as we see it in Acts Acts chapter 2, that rock began to grow. Here we are some 2,000 years later, and that rock continues to grow. It's going to be a day when Jesus appears in the sky, when he comes to finally establish his kingdom here on earth forever and ever. And that rock will, at that point, become a mountain that covers the earth. The reality is there are two kinds of people who are in our lives. There are those who will be in that kingdom and those who are not. God is already at work in their lives. He's put us in their lives to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to them, just like Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's life. My question tonight is, are you prepared? Are you ready? Are your eyes even open to see them around you? And will you proclaim the hope of Christ to them? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the good news of your kingdom. As we see in Daniel chapter 2, we thank you for the inauguration of your kingdom as we see that being done as Mark's gospel is being unfolded before us. And we thank you for the promise of the establishment of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, when you come to this earth. Our hope is built on nothing less but the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. We trust in nothing else and no one else but the name of Jesus. And it's that name that we lift high and we proclaim because it is, there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven except the name of Jesus. So Jesus, we love you and we worship you tonight. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that as we leave this place, we would live the truth of the gospel and we would proclaim the truth of the gospel. I pray that in your name. Amen.